Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys at a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, Craig, it comes several times a year when some famous actor dies and we decide to pay tribute by digging up a horror movie he or she did and uh, reviewing it. Last month, Ray Liotta died in his sleep while filming a movie down in the Dominican Republic. I don't think a cause of death has either been determined or released yet. Yeah. But uh, he was, sadly, only 67 years old. And I grew up really enjoying watching Ray Liotta. I think uh, my first... I, I mean, I saw Field of Dreams. He was Shoeless Shoe Jackson in Field of Dreams. I remember seeing him there. And, of course, uh, he was in Goodfellas in 1990, which was a, a great role. But... um. I remember him the most from a, I think, 1992 thriller called Unlawful Entry. Did Mm -hmm, you ever see that mm -hmm. one? Yep. Where he's the cop that, oh, God, he is terrifying in that movie. Yeah. It is so good. And he always had this way of playing these these nice guys with this sort of dark edge to them, right? Even though he had a variety of roles throughout his career, pretty successfully didn't get too pigeonholed into one particular kind of role. But there was this stretch in the 90s where he was that that creepy bad guy. <laughs> right. Or he was the guy you thought was really nice and charming at first and then turned out to be the bad guy. Yeah, so we, we dug out a movie of his uh, from 1990 called Identity, uh, a movie that I saw a while back and absolutely loved. I, it was so twisty. It was so fun. And it's chock full of stars. It's been decades since I saw it. I, mean, I don't think I've seen it since the 90s. Uh, until t- until yesterday. How about you, Craig? When did you first see this movie? You said it came out in 1990. I'm pretty sure it was 2003. Oh, God, you're right. 2003. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I know I didn't see it in the theater, but I do remember seeing trailers for it, and uh, the lead in the movie is John Cusack, and this was kind of, you know, John Cusack's heyday, too. Yeah. And I remember the trailer just looking, you know mysterious and suspenseful and good people in it of course i already said john cusack ray liotas second build amanda peet fairly early in her career alfred molina yeah <laughs> clay duvall I'm, I'm i'm just going through the, the cast list but there are you know john c mcginley jake Busey, rebecca de mornay you know these were pretty big names um maybe not i don't know if you know, John Cusack, I guess, and Ray Liotta probably pretty A-list at this point, um, but tons and tons of recognizable people, and so I was intrigued, and I I remember liking it, and uh, I remember at the time it being very twisty and not really knowing what was going on, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think that I have ever watched it since. But even watching it this time, having not seen it in 20 years, um, I remembered what the twist was. And if you go into it knowing what the twist is, it's actually projected mm-hmm. pretty heavily. In hindsight, it doesn't really seem like it should have been that difficult to figure out. Uh, yeah, it's true. But 
still an enjoyable movie, good performances, well made, well shot, and it is suspenseful and keeps you guessing. I don't remember this being a movie that that was like major headlines. I mean, I'm sure it came to the theater, but I don't remember it getting a huge buzz or huge reaction. I just remember uh, people, it seemed to be one of those films that got a better life on video. Maybe. And I had actually, because of that, always assumed that it was a straight-to-video movie, which doesn't make a lot of sense for a production just chock-full of all of these stars. And the director of the movie, uh, James Mangold, <laughs> I mean, gosh, a bit before this, he did Copland, Girl Interrupted, Kate Leopold. After Identity, he did Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash biopic, 310 to Yuma, Night and Day, Logan and the Wolverine. <laughs> and now he's finishing up post-production, having directed and co-produced Indiana Jones 5. Yeah. So uh, he's a very accomplished. The movie is quite good. The writer of Identity is the same guy who wrote and directed Jack Frost. <laughs> and I don't mean the Michael Keaton Jack Frost. Right. I mean the one the we've straight done. To video. <laughs> the one that we've done that I... Yeah, it's very goofy. I, I love that episode, by the way. I, I enjoyed watching that movie. I, I did, too. It was fun. But yeah, he wrote this movie, and it's very twisty. It's very intricately plotted. It's just one of those keep-you-guessing thrillers, like what in the world is going on? And it just revolves around all of this uh, activity that happens as these different characters come to converge on a hotel out in the middle of Nevada in the middle of the night. Just before that happens, we get a credit sequence over a psychiatrist who is a, or psychologist. I never know which is which. Right. <laughs> but he's he's listening to some tapes, clearly, of one of his patients. And then he gets a phone call calling him to uh, the judge's chambers in the middle of the night again because his patient is about to be executed. But his request for a stay of execution has been granted and um, so they're going to sort of like discuss it out with the judge and the lawyers and everybody else involved in the case uh, to see if they will allow him to. Because I, some new evidence has been discovered. Like this is very last minute. Yes. Like he was yeah. scheduled to be executed tonight, um, but there's been some new evidence submitted that won't necessarily clear him. And and all of this is vague. Yeah, you don't it's, really know. Right. And you kind of hear things in, like like you said, over the credits sequence, we're seeing like um, news clippings and files and things, and and we kind of hear the doctor, who I think's name is Malik, and he's talking presumably to his patient and talking about his patient. He says something like his mother was a prostitute, he was a child found in a local motel, and then you hear him ask, "Do you understand why you're talking with me now?" Yeah, you're supposed to be good with headaches. I, I need something more than aspirin. You know what I mean? You remember the murders? I remember that Columbia is the capital of South Carolina. been you know six murders uh, at an apartment complex and that's that's it like it's all just kind of very vague I mean and and if you're not really listening those things will just kind of roll past but ultimately even those little details suggest 
kind of what is going on. The the movie, mm-hmm. and I remembered this, uh, it, it starts out with you hear somebody quietly reciting a verse of a poem. Um, and, as, and as soon as I heard it, I remembered it. Like, I, I, I paused the uh, movie and, and typed it down from memory. That's you know 20 years ago <laughs> that i saw it and for some yeah. reason it is stuck with it is stuck with me me too as i was going up the stair i met a man who wasn't there he wasn't there again today i wish i wish he'd go away uh, just, <laughs> so just, creepy. It is so creepy, and it's just one little verse uh, of a poem. In it, a character in the movie claims to have have written it, which isn't true. It was a pre-existing poem, but um, it is spooky and sets a, a good kind of mysterious atmosphere, which is appropriate because this is a mystery. But part of what's kind of jarring about it is that it cuts between these two stories. And for much of the movie, I would say a good three quarters of the movie, I mean, really nothing is confirmed until the last 15 minutes. But I think you kind of start to pick up on what's going on before that. But Mm. immediately, you know, after that very brief segment about this murderer and his stay of execution... Then we cut to this entirely different story, which is set in the desert of Nevada or California. I don't remember. Um, I know that it was shot in Lancaster, uh, in the desert in Lancaster, California, which I've uh, visited. It's it's very near Los Angeles. Um, and it is beautiful uh, desert out there. Much of it, I think the majority of it was shot on a soundstage. It was the same, an elaborate set on a soundstage, this motel that they erected. And it was the same soundstage that the Emerald City from Wizard of Oz was shot on. <laughs> it, it'd have to be pretty big. It seems like they constructed a whole motel yeah. uh, here on the soundstage. Because uh, the whole movie pretty much takes place at night in the middle of a rainstorm. So. Uh-huh. And it's raining the whole time. Heavy. (laughs) I would think that that would just be miserable to be wet for weeks and weeks filming. And I I guess (laughs) the actors were pretty regularly sick. (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) they just kind of kept passing colds back and forth because they were in these wet conditions all the time. Oh, man. But it's it's very atmospheric, almost even a little dreamlike, which is Mm. fitting, ultimately. But we have this whole almost annoyingly large cast of characters. Like, yeah, I was trying I to mean. keep, I was trying to keep track of everybody who was there, and I knew it was an ensemble piece. But they just kept showing up, and I'm like, "Oh my god! Like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> Let's get to it." <laughs> Only annoying for guys who are trying to keep track of names and things for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, true. But even even if not, it's still quite a few characters um, to true. keep to keep track of, and it's also a lot of characters to build intrigue for. Um, yeah. they have to be spread pretty thin because there's so many of them and it's only an hour and a half movie. It's true, but you know what? One thing I think that's really a strength of this movie is it gets into the intrigue pretty quickly. 
And by the, I would say by the time 10 or 15 minutes are finished, you kind of feel like everybody's got a little dark secret. Yeah. Like everybody's a little shady. There's something going on. You know, you don't quite know with each person what might be going on, but you get, just get a sense that nobody's right. Right. And I think the movie, it's, it's a function of the writing, obviously, and the plotting, but it's really clever. And I think that really, if you didn't have that element, if the movie had taken too long to build up the intrigue and the suspense, I think it would have worn hard on me. And I think another thing you have to do, right, is to introduce all these characters in an interesting way. Uh-huh. And, you know, before we realize anything Shay's going on, I think, once again, a really great device is employed here where the, the events leading up to this night where they all converge are kind of told in a reverse chronological order. Uh-huh. Out of sequence, and, right. Yeah, and I I thought that was so cool. You know, there's this man in a hotel room just sitting there. It's, you know, raining outside. He's watching, like, Wheel of Fortune on TV. And there's a bang, bang, bang on the door. And this guy bursts in, holding a woman in his arms. And he's like, she's bleeding, she's bleeding quick. You know, do you have a phone? And then there's, like, a freeze frame. That was an an interesting choice, too. I've never seen this before. Where there's, like, a a two-second freeze of just the frame. Mm -hmm. And that's what leads us into the flashback. Mm-hmm. Not like a flash to white, not like a kind of sound effect or a crossfade. Just that was odd. It was very jarring. Anyway, yeah, and that leads us into a, a quick little flashback of this guy nervously driving down the road in the middle of the day or in the evening. He's got his wife in the front seat. This guy's name is George, mm-hmm. and his wife's name is Alice, and they have a little boy in the back seat named Timmy. And you get the sense right away that this guy's a little, a little mousy, a little. Um, nervous yeah they, they seem to be lost or something oh yeah they get a flat tire they get a flat tire by the side of the road and when he comes down to uh check out what was causing the flat tire he sees that it's a woman's extremely Stiletto. sharp high-heeled yeah. shoe in the meantime it's starting to rain outside and timmy's inside looking at the window and his mom is on the roadside of the car kind of like smiling at him under an umbrella, kind of puts her hand up against the window, and then suddenly, boom, gets completely wiped out. I think before she he gets wiped out, though, we see where the stiletto came from, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it keeps, it cuts back and forth to these different characters, kind of just connecting. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like it's connections between the characters, it's just no. kind of showing how this, this series, they're all connected through this series of events. Mm-hmm. The mom gets hit you know obviously we already knew she was going to be injured so when she was standing there at night in the rain on the side of the road i'm like lady you are going to get wiped out like you (laughs) right you seem like a nice lady but maybe don't stand in the middle of the road you know at night in a rainstorm yeah the it, it turns out that the shoe had flown out of the luggage of another character amanda pete's character whose name is paris her backstory is nebulous, as are all of them. Like, mm-hmm. it, we just see her with a middle-aged man. She's got him chained up in a bed, but, like, in a sexy way. But it kind of seems like maybe she's conning him, like she's going to rob him or something, which we don't really see happen. Well, she takes his um he she lights she's got a pile of whipped cream on his chest. Does this really happen in real life? I'm not sure. I guess everyone has their kinks. But um yeah, he's got like a pile of whipped cream on his chest. I guess she's like going to eat it off of his chest or something and and just a couple candles in there and she sings happy birthday to him and uses like his lighter. I guess it's like a Zippo or something, yeah. but it's 
it's like gold, gold-plated. And as she turns around uh, and is going for something else, you can see her slip it into her purse. So right. I think we do kind of see her her rob him a little bit. And then later you do see she's got like a little uh, case, a little leather case in her luggage that's got stacks of money in it and stuff. So maybe this is what she does. Again, that's that thing. Like, everybody's a little shady. Like, mm-hmm. everybody's kind of hiding something in their luggage or being fishy about their past. And it's it's not everybody. You know, the family, George and Alice and Timmy, they seem... Fine. Yeah, normal. I mean, just yeah. have found themselves in this situation. But really, everybody else, you wonder what's really going on with them. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she gets hit. Turns out that uh, John Cusack's character, Ed, is the person who hit her. He is a driver for a famous or somewhat famous actress named um, Caroline, played by Rebecca De Mornay. I almost didn't <laughs> recognize her. Um, I didn't either. I honestly didn't even recognize her until I saw the credits. <laughs> I, I, I think it's just because she has dark hair and I'm used to seeing her with blonde, blonde. hair. Yeah, that's probably it. And she's also, I don't know if she's just padded or what, but she her breasts are really emphasized, so it looks like she's got these great big knockers. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's, she's beautiful. I mean, she looks great, but yeah. I, I was also kind of surprised her role is, is pretty small. She's the first one to get picked off. Mm-hmm. We then see, you know, through different characters' perspectives, through Ed's perspective and through Paris's perspective, we see that the road is washed out. Uh, phone lines are down. Paris's car breaks down. Ed ends up picking her up. She tells him the road's flooded, but he tries to cross it anyway. And so then his car is stranded. They end up getting picked up by a young couple, Jenny, played by Clea Duvall, who uh, was pretty big uh, in the 90s, kind of started out in teen roles, um, but is, is very much still working. You, you don't know at first what their relationship is, but it turns out they're newlyweds with a lot of tension between them. Uh, mm-hmm. his, his name is Lou. And so everybody begins converging at this motel. Um, eventually... A police officer, Officer Rhodes, played by Ray Liotta, shows up mm-hmm. in a very classic Ray Liotta role. Yeah. He, he <laughs> on several occasions, played this kind of brooding, dark cop. And that's exactly what he is here. Uh, Ray Liotta, by all accounts, is a fi- was uh, a family man. He described himself as a homebody, yeah. said that in his real life he had never ever been in a physical altercation but he's just got an air about it yeah he, he is charming he's handsome but he's also got kind of a rugged look but at the same time he's got these beautiful like piercing blue eyes he does and so he's just one of those characters who he has a presence about him that works really well for certain characters and he's a good actor he he studied acting um he was still in acting classes when he lobbied for and got you know one of his most notable roles in in goodfellas and Mm -hmm. um i i think that he took the craft very seriously even though he he was not a method actor you know when asked what he learned about himself from playing the different characters that he'd played he said nothing 
<laughs> you know, like, um, <laughs> that's that's not what he's in it for. His yeah. uh, theory on acting is really a, what mine is, too, and I think it just comes from an imaginative childhood in my experience. You know, I grew up just playing pretend with my sister all the time. We would just make up characters and scenarios and play them out, and that's what he says about acting. You know, it's just pretending. Mm-hmm. It's trying to figure out, you know, who your character is, but not personalizing it to yourself. Uh, he said that he thinks that actors who try to put too much of themselves into their roles end up being a little bit flat as as actors. You know, it's it's always just some version of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this is a guy who's thoughtful about the roles that he selected. He was offered a lot of roles in the same vein. Big roles. He was offered Tony Soprano and the Sopranos turned it down. Uh, Tim Burton offered him Batman. He turned it down. Um, so he was selective. And he did want to do a variety of, of things. Uh, he did some things for the money. He did a family movie called Dumbo Drop for the money he voiced a character in grand theft auto grand theft auto uh spongebob squarepants movie <laughs> yeah and, and yeah. i i respect that too you know we've talked about sure. other actors well, like that like michael Caine did jaws 4 so he could have a vacation in hawaii and build a nice house that, that good for you it's a job it's, i was just gonna say that people don't realize acting's a job you know uh-huh. you do it to make money and you do it and you, you know how many of us can do something that fun <laughs> you know to make money so you you can have some fun with it have different roles i don't know why people think uh, you know this of course we have later learned that um poor bruce willis is not in the best of health right, but right. you know he and nicholas cage maybe is a better example has just been doing a string of just goofy movies right just off the wall stuff i mean a guy who we typically think of as like national treasure and uh you know con air and and the rock you know this a-list action star and everybody says, oh, look at how far he's fallen. What is he thinking? Taking all these silly roles, direct a video. And I'm like, what What do you mean? He's an actor. This is yeah. what he does. He acts. He's like, wh- why does he always have to, you know, sit around and twiddle his thumbs until someone calls him up for a, a, a another Oscar shot type role? You know, right. forget right. it. Well, and just because, <laughs> yeah, just because a movie is, you know, off the wall or different doesn't ne- doesn't just mean it's bad. I've seen yeah. some of Nick Cage's most recent stuff. And yeah, it's weird and it's bizarre, but it's interesting and would probably be really interesting to work on. And, and Ray Liotta did, you know, some other stuff too. I, I remember he was in a movie, I don't know if it was late 90s, early 2000s, but a, a, a movie called Karina Karina, which was a, a period piece that he did with, uh, I think it was set in the 60s um he played a widowed father um of a young girl and and he was kind of struggling to support his small family and and, you know take care of his daughter and he ended up hiring a housekeeper uh played by Whoopi goldberg and of course set against the backdrop of the 60s um there was you know racial stuff to to deal with if i remember correctly they his character and Whoopi goldberg's character formed a tight relationship that i think maybe even got romantic i don't remember um but it was you know it was a very soft piece Hmm. nothing like he had done before it was a cute movie i remember 
liking it. He just seemed like an all-around good guy. And on, you know, I look at TMZ every day, and and they always do celebrity death announcements. And when I scrolled down and saw Ray Liotta dead at sixty-seven, it kind of. <sighs> I don't know. I'm not I'm not like a Ray Liotta super fan, but he's just been kind of so ubiquitous yeah. in my life. He's always been around. He's always been there. Like Rob Lowe kind of, right? He, I mean, well, he just always you always see him in stuff. I always put them in the same category. I, I think the most recent thing that I I mean, he's he he does several projects a year. Um, one of the things that I remember him from most recently was he played himself in an episode of Modern Family, and he played himself very humbly. The characters in uh, the show were going on like a celebrity homes tour, and they thought they were at Barbara Streisand's house, and it turns out that the star map was just really dated, and she didn't live there anymore, <laughs> and Ray Liotta lived there, and so they were all really disappointed that they couldn't meet Barbara Streisand, and it was just Ray Liotta. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> but he was, but like, he felt bad for them, and so he like took them to Barbara Streisand's house and, <laughs> and that is so funny and and helped them talk to her through her driveway and her com uh, it, it was cute you know and he was playing himself in a very humble way and I just got the sense that that was really the kind of guy he was and so when I saw that he had passed away I was sad mm-hmm. he's not a young man but by today's standards he's not an old man either and i guess you know he goes the way we kind of all hope to go or at least the way i hope to go in my sleep you know I, i hopefully he didn't suffer you know again i don't think any cause of death has been released but he was working mm-hmm. you know so if he was struggling with something behind the scenes he was doing it with dignity um i'm sure that we'll find out maybe even before this episode airs uh his cause of death will be revealed but sad to see him go but nice to kind of go back and look at him in one of his uh kind of classic type of roles here and he plays it well yeah i really enjoy his performance here much like the other characters um to some extent he's flat but that flatness kind of comes with the fact that you have to keep him a mystery you can't lay out his character it has to be revealed over time revealed over time and 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 even ultimately in the end you still have to kind of question you know Mm -hmm. nothing is ever really certain that's right. But he, he shows up and he is transporting a prisoner, Robert Maine, played by Jake Busey. Jake Busey is Gary Busey's son, right? Yes, he is. Yeah. And, I and remember he, him. He looks a lot Starship like his dad. Troopers. Starship Troopers. He does, yeah. He's got that smile. He's got kind of an evil smile about him. Uh-huh. He's a menacing <laughs> guy, too. Um, I've always kind of liked him. Um, he, he always kind of plays kind of a badass uh-huh he's a he's a big guy ray liotta is like five eleven and a half um and i think jake Busey is even taller than that he's a big guy and of course you know here he's a uh, a convict in chains so very menacing the other thing that struck me as funny was this guy larry who is the guy who's running the motel like <laughs> he's having a good night this this roadside motel in the middle of nowhere in a matter of about 20 minutes is completely booked 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> Does it happen every time it rains? He, he might have just gotten the perfect spot. <laughs> Ultimately, you know, in the grand scheme of the movie, that kind of adds to the surreal nature yeah. of it. Again, which is fitting. You know, I, I'm dancing around the twist, but there is a twist. This is not yeah. just some happenstance. These people are all here for a reason. It's not an easily explained logical reason. Um, yeah. But but ultimately, it makes sense. It, it also is a little bit of Shades of Agatha Christie, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, they even reference it. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody coming together, like, and then that where there were none, everybody comes together to an old mansion or something like that. This is just the old motel, and they're just stuck there. Uh, and then people eventually, well, eventually people start dying. Ginny and uh, Lou go back to their room. Uh, and they're little things, again, that kind of happen that eventually kind of turn out to be important. She looks at the room number and says, oh, six. Well, at least we got a good number. And then as they slam the door, like the six kind of comes loose and it swivels down to make a nine. So Ray Liotta's there with the prisoner. Uh, he goes into his room and he chains the guy to the toilet. Somebody asks about Timmy and... Uh, Oh, oh, John Cusack's uh, character starts sewing up the wound because they can't get to a hospital because there's no way. Like, everything's blocked one way and the other way. So Phones are um, down. He, police radio isn't working. Mm-hmm. They're, they're completely alone. Exactly. So he plays nurse to uh, the mother, Alice. Um, she's just knocked out, basically, and sews up her neck. And he asks if Timmy's going to be okay. Hey, is the uh, little boy, is he all right? I don't know. He hasn't said a word since the accident. I don't know if he's... No, no, no. He he doesn't talk much ever since then. I'm his stepfather. His father... Two years ago, he he left. Little temper problem. He witnessed some murders or something. His dad's now in jail, and he hasn't really spoken since then. And I'm actually his stepfather. This is when everybody, th- there's like a montage of shade. Yeah, like, this is it. Like Rhodes, the cop, kind of ogles Paris at the vending machine. He's being but, creepy on her. Yeah. yeah. Cheetos for dinner, huh? That don't seem right. You got a better idea? I work mess in the service. Maybe the diner's open. I could whip something up for you. You got change for a dollar? I don't know. Let me see. There you go. You got a name? Paris. Paris, huh? I get it. Never been. Well, you ain't going tonight. Yeah, right. <laughs> and walks off. <laughs> and that's when we saw th- she has that small case of cash. Um, mm-hmm. Larry seems to be shady, kind of hiding something. We see that uh, Rhodes' shirt has what I thought was because he's wearing a jacket, but at some point he takes it off um, when he's alone in his room. And we see that the sh- the shirt under his jacket has what I thought was a bullet hole in it looks like a hole with blood around it mm-hmm. yeah the, the manager's hiding the stuff cusack has taken some pills for something and the prisoner is trying to work his way free uh-huh. it looks like he's about to do it right 
And Caroline, the actress, I, I really wish Rebecca De Mornay got more screen time because I really like her uh, a lot oh, yeah. uh, as an actress. But she just kind of plays your typical bitchy starlet uh, in this. And she wanders out of her room looking for cell bars. She, she It's raining, of course, so she tears down the shower curtain, is like walking around under the shower curtain. And then she is murdered by an unseen hand. Um, and that's at a half an hour in. So of this hour and a half movie, the whole first half hour is introducing all of these characters. And I didn't think it was slow either. I mean, I thought no. it was kind of interesting. You're clearly building up for something. There's clearly going to be a payoff for everything that happens. Right. So I had the patience for it. it. It only felt slow to me because it took me 45 minutes to watch the first half hour because I kept oh. pausing to write down everybody's character name and the actor yeah. name. So I, you know, after that, it seems to move pretty quickly like ed finds her severed head in the dryer and they also find her room key in there which but it's not hers no it's 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 number nine like she was it's the cop's room key ultimately people keep getting picked off and every time somebody gets picked off they find a key on their body and it's basically a countdown you know it's it's in sequence but that's that's a pretty big moment when they realize that. I mean, that's pretty yeah. creepy. Like, how would all of these keys end up on these bodies in a countdown? Especially because some of the people end up dying in what are clearly freak accidents. Right. So it, it, it starts to feel like, wait, wait, is something supernatural happening? And Jenny at one point even suggests that. Once she says it's a countdown, she says, do you think it has to do with the bot with the, the dead bodies? And she, they're like, what do you the mean? The burial she, ground. Didn't you read the... Uh, the brochures and in the lobby, this was a, a Indian burial ground around here where the government had pushed all the Indians out here and they star- starved, they couldn't get any water, and they died, and then they just buried them here. So there's this hint that maybe there's something supernatural going on as well. In the meantime, we keep bouncing back to this meeting that's going on in the judges' chambers, and I think it's around this point that they're talking, and uh, they're talking about how this... Um, Oh, what's the name of the guy? Uh, the guy's name is the the um, prisoner. The prisoner, Malcolm Rivers. He says, Malcolm. You know, he has a dissociative personality disorder. So there, you know, he has multiple, basically what we would call multiple personalities. And he's like, as you know, in this state, like we can't put someone to death if they were committed a murder that you know they were unaware or they were incapable. You know, kind of like the insanity type thing, or the he was mentally disabled and didn't know what he was doing, kind of thing. And so right. there's you, you just get this sense that he needs to try to prove that to these guys in this room. And he said, and then one of the guys speaks up and says, well, we can't do anything until, you know, the client gets here. And he says, well, he's on his way, but we can talk about it now. And at that moment, I'm thinking, oh, so the prisoner that Ray Liotta was transporting, played by, um, you know, uh, Busey, is the guy. So he's wrapped up in this in that he is now this murderer has arrived at the hotel. I think that's sort of our first little red herring that's thrown at us. Yeah. Um, because as soon as the first woman is killed, they go in and they notice the prisoners escaped. Right. And there's an odd sequence that's also very telling where he, I think it's after the second murder, he's running. He takes off across, uh, you know, we see a shot of him taking off across 
the the street and across a field. The convicts, right. And he sees, you know, he's he's clearly going away from the motel, and he sees in the distance some lights and another building. And so he goes to that, and he goes inside, and it's it's like a kitchen, like a kind of an eating, like a restaurant that has obviously not been used in ages, and you know, chairs are up on tables and things. It's a little dusty. But then when he goes to the, he hears a noise outside. When he goes to the window, he sees he's at the motel again. Mm-hmm. It's just a building as part of the motel. He goes, what the hell? As he looks and he sees Ed uh, slowly walking, you know, towards the, the door. They all think it's him, right? Because obviously he's escaped. Right. Um, and so when they find the severed head and the second person who dies is... Is it Lou? Lou, yeah. Lou and Ginny. This is when we find out that Lou and Ginny are just married, but she pretended she was pregnant, and then she kind of admits she wasn't, and he gets kind of mad at her. She locks herself Kind of mad. Bathroom. It's really volatile. Like, it seems yeah. like he's, he's violent and abusive. Yeah, and she's screaming. Yeah, she's screaming. He's pounding on the door, but then all of a sudden it goes quiet, um, and she opens the door and just sees a silhouette of somebody with a knife, so she goes out uh, her back window. Meanwhile, everybody else comes to see what all the screaming is about, and they go in, and they find Lou dead, stabbed to mm-hmm. death up against the wall. They find the convict inside that little restaurant or whatever, and they t- tie him up to a pole in there on a chair, and he's just being creepy and weird. Well, right, because the Larry is, like, hiding something. Like, it seems like he's hiding something in one of the refrigerators, and the convict sees, and he's like, what are you hiding in there? And Larry's like, oh, nothing. And he's like, it's all right, Larry. We all have our secrets. I'm sitting on a big one. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's all these, you know, all these suggestions that there are things that we don't know. And and yeah. there are. And there are. And they're, they're all kind of eventually revealed but even when some of the little mysteries are revealed it just blows the mystery up even more yeah it's very tense like that yeah ed ed goes and gets some film cameras some of those old disposable cameras that we used to have this is so cute right this movie that like cell phones were not <laughs> it's so funny like earlier in the film when they pull this woman over this this couple over and he's like do any of you have a cell phone they're like no we don't he's like we need a cell phone are you sure you don't have one they're like no we don't i'm thinking nobody in this day and age doesn't have a cell phone right. it's not even a question you would never be stranded anywhere the best you could do is no signal which you know obviously the actress had it's the same thing with the camera right he had to go and find these disposable cameras because he turns out he used to be a cop uh-huh. So he goes in, he starts taking pictures of the body. And um, uh, Paris keeps running out when Ed, who's quite protective of her, is like, what? stop, you got to be with me. You can't keep running out. I told you not to go out. And she hangs with him for a while and they chat a little bit. We learn a bit more about him and how he was on the force. And he just uh, got jaded, basically. And there's this moment where he tried to talk this woman off the ledge and he had been trained for this sort of situation and supposed to tell her all kinds of nice things about who's going to miss her and all that. But then he just kind of like in the he, in the moment, he couldn't think of anything positive to tell her. She ended up jumping and then he realized that, I don't know, he's jaded and he needed to take a medical leave of absence, which is what he did. And and she tells this story, I, th- I think it's at this point, uh, of where she has these hopes and dreams of going to Florida and uh, just opening an orange grove <laughs> and raising oranges and lemons and limes. Actually, I think that comes a little later. It but, comes uh, later, right. Because when, when, eventually they try to, they think 
maybe there's some connection between all of them, which there is, but they don't figure yeah. it out immediately. They they had left Larry guarding the prisoner, but when they, you know, they're constantly coming in and out of rooms and seeing other people moving from room to room. It's yeah, it's kind of hard to keep track of where everybody is and where they're supposed to be, but they see Larry out, which he's not supposed to be. He's left his guard post, and so... They go in to make sure that the prisoner is still there, and he is, but he's dead with a baseball bat shoved all the way down his throat. (laughs) And that was was weird. And I read that somebody, I don't remember who it was, somebody on the crew asked to keep that prop uh, and did and kept it in a closet in the building where they worked. I assume some sort of film production building, but a maid found it eventually and it scared her to death. And so he had to get rid of it or at least, <laughs> or at least get it out of, uh, the building. But because Larry had been carrying around that bat, they assumed that he killed the convict. So they tie him all up. He's swearing up and down. He didn't do it. He's also shady because he has the actress's wallet on him, which he claims that, I mean, we saw that he saw it when she was checking into her room. It was full of cash. So he claims that he only stole it after she was dead, which is, you know, perfectly possible, but still shady enough that I would want him tied up too. Before they tie him up, they're they're threatening to, and he grabs Paris and holds a knife to her throat. She mm-hmm. kind of kicks back, and they both fall into the freezer, revealing a frozen dead body. So that's even more <laughs> suspicious for him. He runs off, takes off in the truck. The little kid, Timmy, is in the path of the truck, so his stepdad, George, runs to try to knock him out of the way. George ends up getting hit by the truck and pinned to the wall and is immediately dead. Um, there's no question about that. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. <laughs> oh gosh. But then they all end up kind of in this hotel room and they're all there's a whole bunch of, you know, back and forth chatter about who could it be and all this. And that's I think at the point where they they discuss how, is this some kind of countdown like with the keys being found on people it doesn't make any sense. Timmy goes into the other room to check on his mom and they just kind of let him do that. Um in the meantime they're just chatting and uh little little things kind of come out where it turns out that each of the characters like they one of them shares a birthday with another one of them went to school near where the other person did and one of them grew up in a town where the other person was born and that kind of thing and then uh they go into the room and they realize that the mother is dead mm-hmm. and <laughs> as as uh, Ed is closing her eyes and Timmy is crying and they lead him out of there Ed looks down and sees a key is under the bed. Mm-hmm. And when he pulls it out, it's, again, it's the next number down. It's like room, I don't know, number number six or number five or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is crazy. How would this room key be on this body? And then they get the idea to go out and check the body of George, George, who was hit by the truck in a freak accident. Right. And sure enough, they pull out of his jacket a room key. It's It's five. And they're like, what in the hell is going on? Because obviously that was an accident. Nobody caused that to happen. So Ed tells Paris to take Tim and Jenny and 
just drive. He, he, she's like, well, the road's out. And he's like, well, if you get to some place where the road is out, just turn around and drive back the other way. And if the road's out again, just keep going back and forth until dawn. Basically, he just wants to get them out of there, which makes sense. Yeah. Not a bad plan, in my opinion. No. But, but she doesn't want to leave. But uh, Jenny and Tim run to the car ahead of her. And while she's still kind of arguing about leaving, the car explodes. Mm-hmm. And they, they go and they run and they uh, put it out with a fire extinguisher, but there are no bodies in it, which they think is really bizarre. And and then they start running around to where all of the other bodies were, and all of the bodies are missing. And there's no evidence of blood or violence or anything. It's just gone. It's unexplainable. And if you haven't figured it out at this point, you ha- there's no logical explanation yeah um for what's going on something bizarre has to be going on and Rhodes, larry ed and jenny are the only ones that are left and that's when they realize that they all have the same birthday and they check the ids from the hotel records all of them had the same exact birthday um most of them their last names are states um, or some yeah. uh, deviation of a state. And then this is kind of where we get the big reveal. Ed is kind of freaking out, trying to figure out what's going on. And he recites the poem from the beginning of the movie. And as he's doing that, he starts to hear the voice of the doctor. And then he flashes into that meeting, that hearing, that evaluation. And the doctor, Dr. Malik, is questioning him. First, he asks who he's talking to. And then he says, it's a long time since uh, I've talked to you. Then he just lays it out. This is where, and this is about 15 minutes out from the end. Um, and he just lays out precisely what's going on. Yeah, he he basically says to him, you know, well, Ed is confused, right? And it's oh, cool yeah. the way this is shot. There's like a bright light on his face. He just looks a little otherworldly. And he says to him, Do you recognize this man? No. Well, that man, Edward, is Malcolm Rivers. He's had a very troubled life. He was arrested four years ago and convicted of the murder of six people in a violent rampage. Did this. Detective, please. Edward, listen to me. When faced with an intense trauma, a child's mind may fracture, creating disassociated identities. That's exactly what happened to Malcolm Rivers. He developed a condition that is commonly known as multiple personality syndrome. Why are you telling me this? Because you, Edward, are one of his personalities. You have just been through this treatment to where all of your personalities are forced to confront each other. And, uh, you know, Ed is saying, well, I was at a hotel where people are dying. And he says, we knew there would be violence in this. You know, that's that's normal. But he's like, you will be executed, but we can stay the execution if you can convince the judge that the last person left, basically, as all of his personality slip away, is not the killer. Right. Because then that means now that you're safe and you're not going to harm anybody. It's such a convoluted. Convoluted, it is convoluted crazy i think but it's fun it's super fun yeah 
the other thing that I think is interesting is that he's talking to this guy and he's not saying you have dissociative personality disorder. He's saying Malcolm has personality yes. disorder and you are just one of the personalities that he's manifested. Mm-hmm. He's basically telling him you're not real. And uh, Ed is saying, no, I am real. I live in Studio City. I used to be a cop. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, nope. <laughs> That's just Look all the made up. Yeah. Look <laughs> in the mirror. And he looks in the mirror and he sees Malcolm. Malcolm, by the way, is played by uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince who is this portly, bald guy who I know we have seen in at least one other movie that we've covered. Um, but he's uh, easily recognizable because he's got these super, super shifty eyes. Like, mm. his eyes just kind of flicker Dark, back, back and, and forth. forth all the time. He, he He's good at looking unhinged. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's that's what he sees. That's what um, Ed sees when he looks. And the guy says, Edward, I need your help. The killer cannot survive. And Ed kind of pops back in to the motel setting. Paris, meanwhile, checks the cop car and sees that the radio has been disabled. Now, Rhodes has been telling everybody that he's been trying the radio periodically and it's just not working. We see mm-hmm. now that actually the uh, radio has been completely disabled. And then, I mean, this late in the movie, we get the truth about Rhodes, <clears throat> which I yeah. thought was actually really clever. Yeah, she reaches into the glove compartment and pulls out two files, and it turns out that both Rhodes and that other guy are both prisoners. And then again, that freeze frame, and we get a flashback to those two being transported in the back of the car by a, an actual police officer. Rhodes ends up having some shiv taped to his leg, which he then pulls out, and through this slit or something, some kind of opening in the back of the, the seat, he manages to stab this guy in the back. They pull the body out and they switch. Uh, he, well, he basically switches his clothes. That's mm-hmm. why the shirt that he was wearing had a blood stain and a hole in the back of it right. that he covered up with his jacket. So yeah, he was. Pre- they were both prisoners, but he was pretending to be the cop uh, escorting the prisoner. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was pretty pretty smart. Which so this is the interesting point. So now we all assume okay, he must be the killer. And right. at this point, of course, it, it all wraps up quite quickly. Ed grabs a gun and um, Paris runs to him and tells him this. And Ed's kind of like, I know. And at the same time, Leota's character has a gun. Rhodes chases around Paris and Larry for a little while. He ends up killing Larry. Um, well, and- yeah. yeah, but, I mean, it's like a Mexican standoff kind of thing. They both shoot each other. Well, it's not Mexican well, standoff, but that's, they, they that's, both shoot that's, each other very quickly. Well, that's Ed. Larry's the hotel guy. Oh, you're talking about the hotel guy, Yeah, right. he, kill, he kills him first. Um, and then he really, you know, he's waving guns at them and threatening to shoot them. He just wants the keys to the truck. Paris has the yeah. keys to the truck, but she doesn't want to. And eventually she runs away, runs into Ed, and Ed's like, I got this. And he just starts walking towards Rhodes, and they both raise their guns, and they both shoot each other multiple times. Throw me the keys to the truck, Ed. Throw me the keys to the truck. Stay there. Stay there. And um, yeah. there's a brief exchange between them. Like they they em- almost embrace. I, I, it's more mm. really that they're like falling together, but they almost embrace. 
and they mouth words to each other. And originally there was dialogue, but they muted it out um, because they feared that it projected the ending too easily. It's a wise choice. So I'll come back to that. Right. Yeah. Um, Rhodes dies. Ed falls to the ground. Paris comes and talks to him and, and she's like, what did you see or something like that? And he says, I saw you in an orange grove. And we also see, you know, it's it's kind of fading back and forth between him and Malcolm, the dissociated personality guy. And he's saying the same thing. I saw you in an orange grove. And so it seems like, you know, Jenny is the last one standing. The killer is dead. And so in the morning, Jenny is able to drive away in her truck. And uh, we cut back to the hearing um, and the judge decides that Malcolm's execution will be stayed and that he will be transferred to a mental hospital because he's no longer a threat. The violent personality within him is dead. Jenny arrives at her orange grove. Um, everything's beautiful and peaceful. And she goes to dig, you know, in her grove and she digs up the last key, the number one key. <laughs> and she looks up. <laughs> and Timmy is standing there. Mm-hmm. He's got her menacingly, tool. yeah, menacingly like Damien and the Omen. <laughs> He's yep. got an ugly look on his face, and yeah, and it turns out that all along Timmy was the killer, and it just kind of shows again a, a little bit of its nebulous. But again, when you realize this is all happening in the head of a guy in the guy's imagination, right? This isn't a real kid. In fact, logic logically, it makes sense. I mean, if if he witnessed murders when he was a kid and his personalities were fractured when he was a kid, it would probably, you know... He might be the... Yeah, that personality, yeah. that kind of frozen, stunted personality, it makes sense that that would be the violent force uh, in his mind. The, the, flash, the flashbacks that they show are very, very brief, but... <laughs> as as unbelievable as it is that this kid could, in this Machiavellian way, plot all of this out, I believed it. You know, even yeah. just just little things that we saw, like nobody questioned it when he walked into his mom's room alone. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. we see that he smothered her to death in that moment. Um, he saw the guy who was trying to escape he saw him get into the truck and started up so he ran out into the path of the truck intentionally so that his dad would jump in there and push him away right Right. he even supposedly led his mother to the window to get hit by the car in the first place or like kept her there you know so again these things might not really and i guess hot wired a car to blow up because <laughs> it shows yeah. him walking away from the car exploding in the background and i knew that that was i i felt that they covered it well by making all of the bodies disappear but this is a mm. horror movie and anytime somebody dies off screen and you don't see them in the aftermath it should be a major red flag but yeah, exactly. Anyway, Mal- Malcolm's in the back of the transport vehicle. There's a driver and his doctor in the front, and he becomes agitated, and you hear him start to say, and then it flashes to Timmy and Jenny. Together they say, whores don't get a second chance. <laughs> um, and then Timmy kills Jenny. Malcolm busts through the cage of the transport vehicle and kills uh, Malik. And we just see the van 
um, veer off onto the side of the road. And then we hear the voice of Timmy reciting the poem from the beginning again. And that's it. The end credits. <clears throat> it's a cool double twist. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed it immensely. I, I, I just, I'd forgotten the second bit. I remembered the, you know, the bit about this was all happening in his head. I'd forgotten that it turned out that Timmy was the killer and it had that all that bleaker twist ending. And I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. You know, it's funny too, because it, it made me think of something else. When I was watching the movie, I was thinking, well, of course, you know, just because Ray Liotta's character is not who he says he is, doesn't immediately make him the killer. Right. right? <laughs> like, like logically, that doesn't fit. But doesn't that follow the pattern of every single thriller movie you've ever seen? Right. Yeah. It's always somebody who's not who they say they are who turns out to be the one who's killing everybody. Well, and if so. it had been him, it would have been too obvious. Yeah. That bit of dialogue that they cut out, um, Ray Liotta kind of whispers into John Cusack's ear, I didn't do this. And Ed says, I know. And then they both die. Now, I don't mm. know what Ed knew. Well, I think knew, Ed... Because Ed is a part of... of uh, oh, okay. That makes sense. I, I think ultimately, because, again, this is still taking place in this guy's imagination. Yeah, one so guy. to some degree, yeah, he kind of he kind of knows anyway. But, uh, yeah, that's that's also why I gave it a pass to where, you know, Timmy could have killed all these people. It's it's all just happening in this guy's head anyway. So right, uh, as right. long as it makes enough logical sense, it could work. Fantastic. Ray Liotta gets a lot of screen time in this. We had originally considered maybe doing Hannibal because he has a pretty notorious scene in there. But I think it's a pretty short scene. He's kind of a minor character. And so we thought this was a meteor role of his horror roles. And like you said, he's done a wide variety of roles. You know, you know, we were talking about him earlier. And uh, when you just kind of talk about assumptions, I mean, he, he, I always thought he was Italian. I mean, he was, uh, his last name's Leota. He played these, you know, gangsters. He's got this kind of New Jersey uh, accent, yeah. typically. And uh, when I was reading about him, I was surprised to find out that he was actually an orphan. He was left at an orphanage, abandoned by his parents. And it was uh, his adoptive father was Italian, and that's where he picked up that that name. And then uh, I guess in 1990 or 2000, I guess somewhere in the 2000s, he actually hired a private investigator to track down his birth mother, and he found out he actually is of Scottish descent. And so that explains those uh, piercing baby blue eyes that he's got there, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, what a great character. Like you said, I feel I feel similarly. Like, you know, I didn't cry tears, but right. I was like, oh, Ray Liotta. Yeah, I just he's just always been around, and I've always enjoyed seeing him in movies. And uh, oh, it's just kind of sad that he's not with us anymore. But, once again, if, if I'm going to find a way to... the, the what, We're all going to go sometime, and... Uh, going in my sleep would be would be my top choice. I'm I think. So. Yeah, and and I say this all the time. You know, it's it's sad that he's gone, but you know, look what he accomplished in his life, uh, and and not only in his career, but um, you know, he he was a family man. He was married. He he had a, a kid, and um, I think that he was uh, very well respected in the industry, not only as a performer, which I think that he was very much respected as a performer, um, but just as a man. Mm -hmm. um, I think that he was well-liked. I think that he was 
regarded as being very professional, somebody that people wanted to work with. This was a guy who was able to turn down roles, who was able to take the roles that he wanted, was able to branch out. And not many of us have those kinds of opportunities. And he seized them. Mm -hmm. And I think that... uh, Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm sure that given the choice, he would have preferred to have more time with his family. But the life that he did lead was full, um, a good guy, and I'm, I'm sure he'll be missed. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online. If you just Google two guys in a chainsaw podcast, you'll find our website. You might find our Patreon page where you can certainly become a member if you'd like. Twitter feed. And uh, you'll find our webpage, twoguys.red40net.com. Just leave us a message any one of those places. Let us know what you'd like us to do in the future and uh, what you thought of this episode as well. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Ah.